Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. So today's episode is a special one for a few reasons. First, we would like to salute the United States Navy, which is celebrating its 248th birthday. The U.S. Navy has a storied history, which includes hundreds of thousands of sailors who served their country, and it spans from its first ships, like the USS Ganges and USS Constitution, to today's highly capable warships like USS Jack H. Lewis, the first of the Flight 3 Arleigh Burke-class destroyers, the stealthy Zumwalt-class destroyers, and the new Ford-class aircraft carriers. As a youngster, I remember being fascinated by the naval engagements of World War II, particularly in the Pacific. I remember reading a lot about the Battle of Midway and how intelligence, timing, and dare I say some luck, all played a factor in the United States Navy's success in that battle, which arguably turned the tide in the Pacific in favor of Allied forces. So I can't think of a better person to mark this birthday anniversary with than our guest, United States Navy Captain Jonathan Lips, the commander of Task Force 6-4 and NATO's Commander Task Group Integrated Air and Missile Defense, which is assigned to Naval Striking and Support Forces NATO, otherwise known as Strike for NATO. As it happened, on the day of our interview, and down to the hour in fact, Commodore Lips was celebrating 30 years of serving in the United States Navy. The timing of our interview and the Commodore's work anniversary was pure happenstance, but I felt a sense of joy and honor that we could mark that milestone together in a very small way. So we here at Go Bold are also celebrating an anniversary of sorts because this is our 50th episode. It's a great milestone achievement and it's all thanks to our team and to the wonderful guests that we have had from various allied militaries around the world. So thank you everyone, especially my guests. Thanks to you. You know, the leaders we showcase are wonderful ambassadors for their services and I'm so honored to have spent time with each of them. They have all been kind and accommodating, and I'm heartened to see how professional each one of them is. We do this podcast because we believe we have the right mix in our mission to bring light to those that serve, and to learn about the things that warfighters do, and to learn about new technologies and capabilities. We have a lot more ahead, so I want to thank our guests, and I want to thank our listeners, and I want to thank our sponsors for helping bring these episodes to you. So that brings me back to my guest for today's episode, Commodore Jonathan Lips, whose career focus has been on integrated air and missile defense. Our chat focused on Exercise Formidable Shield 2023, a biennial exercise which is meant to demonstrate allied interoperability in a joint, live-fire, integrated air and missile defense environment using NATO command and control reporting structures. Commodore Lips was the task group commander of the exercise, and his command ship was the Spanish guided missile frigate Blas de Lezo. Exercise Formidable Shield is Europe's largest and most complex integrated air and missile defense exercise. It took place over a 1,000 nautical mile area from the west coast of Scotland to northern Norway. So that's from the North Atlantic to the Arctic Circle. And it brings together ships, aircraft, and ground-based units from throughout the NATO alliance. 
20 surface ships from across NATO took part in the exercise, with ships from the United States, France, Spain, Italy, and the Netherlands launching numerous missiles against subsonic, supersonic, and ballistic missile targets. These missiles included the Aster-15, the Aster-30, the Standard Missile-2, and Evolved Sea Sparrow missiles. Not only did ships fire missiles, but land units employing HIMARS and NASAMs also engaged targets during Formidable Shield. The importance of integrated air and missile defense cannot be understated because it is meant to protect territory, populations, and forces against air and missile threat and attack, and it is meant to contribute to deterrence. One only has to look at current events in Ukraine and Israel to see how incredibly important it is, let alone the constant ballistic missile threat that exists from North Korea and others. In this episode, you'll hear Commodore Lips speak about his journey in integrated air and missile defense, and that includes the first intercepts of ballistic missile targets with the Standard Missile 3 guided missile, his time at the Aegis Ashore Missile Defense Test Complex, and his time at the Aegis Ashore Missile Defense System in Romania. And then we talk about Exercise Formidable Shield and why it is so important for NATO and allies. Integrated air and missile defense is a fascinating topic, and we have a true expert in the field, or in this case, on the water, with our guest, Commodore Jonathan Lips of the United States Navy. Let's get at it. Welcome to Go Bowl. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I am joined by United States Navy Captain Jonathan Lips, who is the commander of Task Force 64 with the U.S. Navy. And he is also the NATO commander for Naval Striking and Support Forces Task Group Integrated Air and Missile Defense. Um, it's a mouthful, but we'll try to unpack all of that. And uh, I'm just very grateful for the captain to join me today direct from Europe. So, Captain Lips, thank you so much for joining me, or I should say Commodore. Thank you so much for joining me today on Go Bold. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. Hey, Jyoti. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with uh, you and your audience. And I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to talk about a subject that uh, I am passionate about, uh, one that I have been very privileged and fortunate that I have been able to lead our sailors at sea in the execution of. So thank you very much. You know, it's uh, I think it's poignant and striking for me that right about now, exactly 30 years ago to the hour, I was being commissioned in the United States Navy. So this is a, a really a, a, a neat uh, rudder stop and a chapter um, bookmark for me. Well, I, I am I'm very, very thankful to be part of uh, part of your story, even if it's just a minuscule bit, but poignant in that it's 30 years to the hour. So I, I think that's absolutely awesome. And yeah, I, I'm totally looking forward to this discussion because the things that you are focused on and, and have focused on throughout your career are very, very important things because I think everybody in the world that is observant recognizes that there is ballistic missile threats that face allied nations and there has to be a way to counter that. And so clearly we'll get to that here in due course. And I'm looking forward to you kind of unpacking all that. I know it's a big subject, but 
as I do with all of my guests, I start out by asking, what was your motivation to join the military and why did you pick the branch that you did? A great question, Jody. I was, uh, I actually went to the United States Merchant Marine Academy. Um, I, I somewhat jokingly tell people, you know, I, I didn't think I wanted to be in the military my entire life. I just wanted to be a truck driver on the high seas. And well, now I shoot things down in outer space for a living. So <laughs> you never know, you never know what course life directs. Um, but to answer your question, the reason that I had joined the Navy was, um, because I couldn't find a job sailing blue water uh, in uh, in the merchant fleet. Uh, wow. So uh, when I graduated back in 1993, that was, of course, following Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And so the United States had recalled a bunch of previously retired merchant mariners to man up what was then called the Ready Reserve Fleet uh, to be able to take the war stocks into Saudi Arabia in advance of uh, the invasion and uh, subsequent uh, repatriation of Kuwait. Um, well, when they did that, a lot of those uh, retired mariners realized how much money was to be made uh, when they stayed around. And so when young uh, Jonathan Lips was trying to find a job, uh, you know, everyone that was in the union hall had cards that predated my birth. And so I was down at the bottom end of the pecking order or would have been. And fortunately, I had an opportunity to activate a reserve commission. All of the graduates of the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, you graduate with a Merchant Mariner's license, a Bachelor's of Science degree, and a reserve commission in the uniform or the service uh, of your election upon graduation. And so what I did was just formally activate that reserve commission for what I thought was going to be three years, uh, but subsequently has turned into 30 years. I love it. You know, you, you are the first person that I've spoken to that has graduated from the United States Merchant Marine Academy. Um, and I think, you know, it's so funny how life kind of uh, takes the turns that it does and where you ended up because, yeah, you were doing much more than just sailing around a, a boat in the blue ocean. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. But, you know, I stayed true to the roots. I loved uh, being at sea. And, you know, that was uh, that was my calling. Uh, and so it's been in the DNA. And so we still do it. Yeah, it's awesome. And clearly, you know, I just had a guest uh, for episode 46, who was a U.S. Navy commander. And, you know, he told me his motivation to join the U.S. Navy, as opposed to the other branches of the United States military, was because the United States Navy offered so many different career pathways. And, you know, when I was thinking about it, um, I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. You could go surface fleet, you could go subsurface, you could go aviation, and you could go fixed wing aviation, you could go rotary, you could, you know, like, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And now that includes things to deal with space and all sorts of things. So I was like, man, that was smart thinking. And, um, and so here, here you are, you know, one of those people that's kind of taking advantage of, of a career path that perhaps you didn't anticipate when you started. No. Um, and you, you have the added benefits. Again, there's a I think there has to be a, an innate desire for exploration. And you, you have um, the benefit of the privilege of being able to lead sailors from day one. Not only are you working with very complex um, systems and propulsion plants and weapon systems, radars and communication devices, um, but but you are entrusted 
and bestowed with the privilege to be able to lead our nation's finest in an environment that at its nature is hostile. And so, you know, there is not an opportunity where you're allowed to let your guard down. Um, and that's before you ever engage with a potential adversary. And so it's a, you know, it's a very exciting, uh, dynamic um, and wonderful opportunity that, uh, you know, I've just been been uh, blessed with having. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So let's let's talk a little bit, um, Captain Lips, about your career path and how you've got to where you are today. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask about your first ship, but clearly then you went on to the surface combatant fleet. Great question, Jyoti. I'd started uh, on a helicopter carrier um, and uh, USS Guam out of Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, and so uh, her mission was to, using vertical envelopment, employ and deploy Marines onto the beach. Uh, and she didn't have a well deck. Uh, and uh, she, you know, was um, Really, if you if you looked at uh, the LPH class, they were kind of uh, essentially almost like the then uh, equivalent of a jeep carrier. If you were to go back to World War II and think about the comparisons of a fleet carrier uh, to the jeep carriers or ASW carrier, that was that was kind of what the LPH was. And she carried um, just under a thousand Marines, and you know I think we probably had 30 helicopters uh, that were on board or a mixed complement of helicopters and up to four uh, harriers that we could employ and you know the the hulls uh, those had essentially been laid uh, going back to the 60s quite frankly when those ships was that class of ship was being built um, and uh, you know um, did very well for what they did but the mission set was was somewhat limited you know uh, for how they would be employed. And uh, when I selected my next ship as my second division officer tour, so I spent three years on USS Guam, uh, either uh, as uh, an engineering officer or as the weapons officer, uh, primarily responsible for the uploading of the aviation resources, the Cobras, uh, the Harriers, uh, Hueys, uh, or, um, you know, delivering the ordinance to the Marines that we were putting ashore on the beach. I went from that mission to uh, then the combat systems officer and operations officer in USS Hewitt, a Spruance class destroyer that was home ported in Yokosuka, Japan. And so this was, I reported to Hewitt in 1996, I believe. Um, and so we were starting to go through some significant turmoil with the the leadership uh, of North Korea at the time. Uh, our mission was not air and missile defense on a Spruance-class destroyer, uh, but she was a strike destroyer, is what we call. And so she was outfitted uh, with Tomahawk cruise missiles in her form of VLS. Uh, so Tomahawks and, and harpoons are what we carry. And so our um, either surface warfare or strike warfare or anti-submarine warfare with our, our sonar and our embarked helicopter was our, were our three principal missions. And so I spent a year and a half uh, on Hewitt operating in the Pacific there. Uh, and my next ship after my first shore tour uh, was the commissioning of uh, USS Lassen, uh, Aegis guided missile destroyer that was being constructed in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And then we sailed her to San Diego, California, turned her over to the fleet. Um, did some uh, integration uh, and some exercises associated with the combat system trials 
uh, of uh, that. She was the first flight to Alpha uh, that was on the West Coast. Uh, so we uh, brought that capability into the fleet and the testing with that. And I was the operations officer there. My next assignment um, in the normal progression was uh, to go, uh, I was the operations officer in USS Lake Erie. Uh, right. And so I reported, yeah, I reported to the USS Lake Erie in the summer of 2001. And, uh, you know, my, my request at that time uh, had been that I wasn't sure really what ballistic missile defense was. Um, but there was some discussion that we were starting to see in the open press about two Navy ships that were tracking ballistic missiles. I was like, I, I don't really understand what this is, but I think this is where I want to go. Um, hmm. This is what I want to be associated with. And at the time, it was what was being reported was just the tracking capability. Um, you know, the the Navy um, theater-wide engagement or the terminal engagement capabilities were still almost through the lens of, of Ronald Reagan's, you know, the, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which is where these, you know, the capability had its, its genesis, um, make no mistake. Uh, but in an interesting tie, harken back to that speech of when I think I was in the third grade and I remember because when the president was on TV, he was the only thing on TV because there were three TV channels. That's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he was on all three. Uh, and so I remember the strategic defense initiative speech uh, from my youth. And here I had an opportunity, um, you know, at that point to become involved with it. And so it really, it, it called to me. That's really interesting. And I have to pull on this thread of summer of 2001, because we all know what happened in September of 2001. Right. Um, everybody remembers where they were. If you were alive during that time and you were of age, of any age, uh, you remember where you were that day. Um, I'd love to ask you about that. So I was uh, the operations officer in the cruiser. Um, I received a phone call um, at, I, I don't even remember, three, four o'clock in the morning. Um, we were sailing from Hawaii to the west coast of the United States, escorting then the USS Constellation, uh, one of our older aircraft carriers, uh, right. back from deployment. Uh, so she had pulled into Hawaii to embark some family members uh, to conduct a what was we call a tiger cruise uh, from Hawaii to the west coast of the United States. The strike group was Returning home takes five days to sail from Hawaii to San Diego. Uh, and so that was uh, really kind of a, um, a low threat uh, environment. The reason that Lake Erie was integrated with the strike group then was because we had been pulled off a normal carrier strike group integration mission to focus on the ballistic missile defense test mission. And so this was an opportunity the captain and I had identified to make sure that, you know, the sailors, the tactical warfighters, we maintained uh, our roots with the fleet Navy and our ability to integrate on the multi-mission aspects of what you require from a surface combatant. So I got a phone call uh, when I was sleeping, I was off watch. Uh, and the, the phone call essentially was ops. We need you in combat right now. The DEFCON, the defense conditions were changing. Um, and, wow. uh, and that was, you know, um, that was my, my wake up call, uh, essentially on you know, September 11th. Um, Literally. and then, 
literally. And then we ended up uh, spending, I forget how long, uh, supporting what the U.S. called the Noble Eagle Mission or the air defense, you know, of the major uh, civilian population centers on the West Coast and East Coast. Um, you know, but we were bouncing between cities in uh, uh, California and Washington population centers uh, providing for air defense uh, from sea. Uh, and then we sailed back to Hawaii and uh, started to ramp up for the very first SM-3 intercept of a ballistic missile in January of 2002. You were there. I was I was the ops boss. And in fact, you know, when you talk about defining moments in a career, I had just, uh, this was January of 2002, uh, I had just completed the firing brief associated with that mission, which was uh, um, Stellar Eagle is what it was called, um, and had just concluded the brief to the, the wardroom and the CO and outlining which team was going to be on watch, um, where ships were going to be, aircraft were going to be associated with range surveillance and range safety, telemetry platforms to be able to relay data uh, from the Lake Erie as the firing ship back to the either the range or the beach or the missile defense agency. Um, and after I had presented what I thought was a, a, a very comprehensive brief, and, you know, again, I, I referenced back to I had done a number of those briefs as the operations officer in USS Lassen because of all of the firing events we did during her commissioning trials. That's a normal you know, conduct of events. So I was, I was fairly confident in what a firing brief entailed and how to present it you know, in a complex environment. Sure. And I'll never forget, Jody, at the end of that brief, Captain, he looked over the tops of his glasses at me as, as seniors can do. And he said, Ops, that was a fantastic brief, but I need to know where the space station and the space shuttle are when we go to fire. Holy smokes. No kidding. And, and, and I realized in that moment, at that point, my life had changed. Um, and so that was a, a very career-defining moment uh, and reinforced to me um, that, you know, the United States Navy really stood at the forefront of world capability in being able to defend our and our alliance and partners, citizens, quite frankly. Um, you know, the battle space is outer space from the perspective of being able to, to employ that defensive capability. Yeah, that's fascinating, uh, Captain Lips. I, I, like, I mean, yeah, just to hear those words, where's the space station, where's the space shuttle, like, wow, <laughs> you know, that, that that will tell you exactly what kind of capability that you potentially have right there into your hands, right? So, you know, so, and so when we, we, we ultimately went on, uh, conducted uh, several, um, I, I was a part of three uh, successful uh, engagements with SM3 uh, before my departure. Uh, uh, and then I rolled to what we call shore duty um, after spending a, a number of years at sea but as a department head between the two ships. And so I became a uh, air defense instructor in Newport, Rhode Island at the Surface Warfare Officer School. Uh, and so I was teaching prospective commanding officers and tactical action officers how to employ the Aegis weapon system, uh, you know, both uh, at sea 
uh, and their capabilities uh, above and below the sea as well. Hey folks, here is a message about our sponsor, Cubic Defense. The episode you're hearing today speaks about developing high-end capabilities. And such capabilities come from the training that warfighters undertake to be the best prepared that they can be. Cubic is a market leader in training operators to be proficient in the application of their platforms for their warfighting mission. From well-integrated instrumentation systems, to game-based learning, to multi-domain, blended, live, virtual, and constructive training environments, Cubic remains the United States' allied and coalition partner of choice to deliver truth in training. Cubic's total learning platform is a maritime game-based learning platform that has proven to reduce the time to train watch standards on United States LCS combatants by 90%. And Cubic's blended live virtual and constructive open standards based solution enables live and virtual ships and aircraft to train together in a common, secure, synthetic environment. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic Defense delivers real results. We are proud to have Cubic as a teammate for this podcast. To learn more about Cubic, please visit them at cubic.com. Followed that, um, I went out to 7th Fleet in Japan again as the air and missile defense officer, the ballistic missile defense officer out at 7th Fleet. Uh, And then while I was out there, we were conducting the limited defensive operations mission in support of the ground-based interceptor defense of the United States. And so the ships were acting as radar picket ships off the coast of Japan, providing a track if North Korea had launched a intercontinental ballistic missile at the United States, we would be providing that track back to the ground-based interceptors that would launch out of Fort Greeley, Alaska, and or Vandenberg, California, um, to provide an intercept of those. Uh, while I was in Japan, then the SM-3s also were introduced to the fleet, and the first eight SM-3s, uh, from an operational perspective, were introduced to the fleet, and the first eight SM-3s then flew into theater, and we put those on the ship. So it was a very dynamic uh, in time, uh, you know, involved with the air missile defense fight. And then of course, at the same time, while all of that was focused on North Korea, you know, China was really in the, you know, has been uh, and was then, you know, in the heyday of building naval capability uh, as they move forward. Uh, so um, it was uh, exciting. And I was able to, to, when I left Japan, I went to Honolulu, Hawaii, to the Pacific Fleet Headquarters and then carried that Uh, portfolio with me uh, to augment uh, or to support the four-star fleet commander there. And so I essentially had gone from the numbered fleet commander's air and missile defense lead to the Pacific fleet commander's air and missile defense lead. Spent a number of years there in that capacity, bringing that naval and integrating it with the larger joint force was the focus there. And so the numbered fleet it had been, the principal focus had been on just deploying and employing the integrated air and missile defense capabilities at sea. And then at the Pacific fleet level, it was more on integrating that capability across the joint force. While I was there, um, I was asked to go stand up 
the Aegis Ashore Missile Defense Test Complex. Because I had done uh, a commissioning built, essentially, or supported building uh, the USS Lassen, uh, that Aegis guided missile destroyer, um, the Navy, the Missile Defense Agency was moving forward in fielding President Obama's 2009 European phased adaptive approach, which had been uh, codified in the Ballistic Missile Defense Review that had been published under President Obama. As a part of that was taking the Aegis afloat capability and putting it ashore in Europe. Uh, And so the Missile Defense Agency, before they wanted to uh, do that, built the Aegis Ashore Missile Defense Test Complex at Barking Sands, Hawaii. And so we were able to conduct all of the initial SM3 firings from land in Hawaii and then say with absolute assurance that that capability was successfully employed uh, when we went into the European theater with the capability. And um, it is different. It's very similar, um, but it is also different. Uh, When you think of the the complexities of the weapon system and radars, making sure that they're spacing the uh, cable runs that are associated with signal loss, all of that is important uh, and translates over. And so, you know, the example that I would say is if you look at Aegis Ashore, where the launcher is in relation to where the radar is on a ship, launchers, you know, within 100 feet. At Aegis Ashore, it's a quarter of a mile. Um, and so there are differences, although it's a very similar capability. It's the same capability. There are, in fact, differences uh, in how it's fielded. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there, which is awesome because it really speaks to how complex this problem is and different approaches to it. So um, one of the first things that I'd like to ask you to define is the the SM-3, the standard missile three, because there's the standard missile family of missiles right. and the SM-3 is a ballistic interceptor. Correct. Right. And so th- that is, I think, something to distinguish it and it requires um, a whole system of systems, I, 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 I'm i assuming. That's exactly right, Jyoti. And that's, that's how we characterize it. Um, and it's, you know, now um, we've evolved that capability across the joint family of sensors and effectors. And so when you integrate it, you have to apply that system of system methodology, not only within your lifelines of a single ship, but you have to look at it across the supporting sensor architecture. You know, going back to the SM3, um, to help you put it in context, the missile itself uh, is, you know, about 21 feet long. Um, And so it is, you know, seven meters. Um, and if you think as far as the diameter, uh, it's 13 and a half inches around. You know, if you were to look at a SM-3 Block 1 missile uh, sitting right next to an SM-6, which is, you know, the endoatmospheric engagement capability, both air and ballistic, but instead of using a hit-to-kill capability, the SM-6 uses a blast fragmentary warhead. Um, the two missiles really are kind of hard to tell apart, quite frankly. Okay. Um, and so, you know, most people, if they didn't know what they were looking for, would say, oh, it's the same. It looks exactly the same because it really kind of does. Um, 
The difference being, you know, as we had mentioned, the SM3 is designed to hit its target where there is no atmosphere. And so my minimum engagement altitude is outside the atmosphere. Now, I'm not going to go into the specific details, obviously, um, but suffice it to say uh, that uh, where I, you know, where I can shoot is well above where anything can fly using, um, you know, uh, aerodynamic glide and things like that. Uh, right. Okay. So then the the other distinguishing point I'd like you to kind of point out, uh, Captain Lips, is you mentioned the interceptors that would launch out of Fort Greeley or Vandenberg. How did those differ or do they that's, differ from an yeah, SM6? They, 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 or an or, SM3. Sorry, SM3. Sorry. My no, that's, that's fine, Jyoti. So again, kind of going back to my roughly right rather than precisely wrong comparison, <laughs> right. uh, if, you'll, if you'll allow me, because, you know, it, it is rocket science at the end of the day. Right. Um, but if you take that 21 foot, 13 inch, 13 and a half inch missile, you would need to expand it to um, about 50 foot, uh, 50 inches around. And, you know, that's what you would be looking at as far as the ground based interceptor is concerned. And all of that extra volume translates into fuel. Um, right. So the kinetic warhead. Uh, uh, the SM3, um, you know, being about a 13-inch footprint uh, is roughly about the size of your keyboard, mm-hmm. um, you know, your computer keyboard. Uh, the ground-based interceptor um, exoatmospheric kill vehicle, their EKV, um, is roughly, you know, about the size of a small child and weighs instead of 40 pounds, I think, somewhere on the order uh, maybe 240, 250 pounds. Um, so, you know, significantly larger body and frame. And so that translates into different capabilities because the SM3 was designed to be fielded to defeat a short and medium range ballistic missile capability, whereas the ground-based interceptor is designed and fielded to defeat an intercontinental ballistic missile. That the adversary requires. Gotcha. Now, over the course of time, uh, the Missile Defense Agency uh, has been able to continue to mature those capabilities with the SM3. And so the SM3 Block 2 Alpha is now out in the fleet. And that capability, if you go back, uh, you can pull, I forget the exact date, but a couple of years ago, the Missile Defense Agency. The United States Navy conducted a mission uh, they called Flight Test uh, Maritime 44, I think. Uh, and that was a demonstration of an SM3 Block 2 Alpha successfully engaging an ICBM class target. Wow. Um, and so, uh, you know, the capabilities have continued to mature, both from a missile, but also from a radar perspective. And then also from a data links perspective, as we look at how the force employs these capabilities in recognition of the battle space and how an adversary will employ their offensive capabilities, um, you know, your battle space must therefore significantly grow in volume in order to ensure a depth of fire. And so that kind of goes back to that. How do you, from a system of systems, whether you're talking about a single ship or integrating a ship with the larger joint architecture 
and that joint architecture in the context of you know Canada and the United States is multi-domain and an alliance architecture because of you know how we operate uh, and you know so so there's multiple levels of integration that is occurring from command and control if I think of NORAD Northcom. Mm -hmm. uh, but then also from how do I take, um, you know, the Aegis uh, or the Canadian future air warfare system or ship that they're going to be procuring and buying, integrating it with a fleet today or with a legacy Halifax class, um, you know, that's there so that we can optimize those capabilities. And the way that we're doing that, um, you know, right now is with data links. And so, you know, when you think about how do you maximize that, the data link of a of a group of ships at sea is is kind of anal analogous uh, to the internet and how you and I are talking right now. Uh, quite frankly, you know, the data link does for the ships what the internet's doing for me and you to have this conversation. Could we do it over a phone? Yes, we could. Could we do it over teletype? Yes, we could. But we could also do it over you know the internet, and so. That's the, you know, the, the data links have matured in a similar vein so that not only do they carry voice, but also voice and video. And so the, now the data links today support real-time engagement of distributed weapons, quite frankly, across the joint force. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at, Captain Lips, is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you're kind of poking directly at cooperative engagement capability, I think, or, or that's part of it, I, th I think. So, so that is, that is, yeah, and that's, you know, as, as these things mature, whether we're talking the, the Navy's cooperative engagement capability, um, the Army's uh, integrated broadcast or uh, um, integrated fire control, um, they, they're very similar in that construct. That What it brings is a, um, an opportunity to pair effectors and sensors agnostic of their origin, quite frankly, is the state that we have to mature to. And because I, I challenge my team, I have grown up in a world where, you know, the performance of my radar and the performance of my missile was what was integral to closing the fire control and being able to get a successful engagement occurred. The right. fact is today, just as important as my organic radar and or my organic uh, standard missile is my ability to link that capability with the rest of the joint force. And so that's a that's a new revelation. I shouldn't say revelation. It's a it's a it's a mature maturing construct uh, that the joint forces have. It. Um, and, you know, and, and that now you bring in, you know, your international um you know, ties and binds and things like that. And that adds levels of complexity to it as well. Yeah. And so I guess that is the distinction between combined and joint. Uh, so combined brings in partner nations. Uh, and so obviously there's got to be that agreement to to be able to share this information and kind of be in part of this group. Uh, and I think that's Partly, I think, through uh, alliances like the Five Eyes alliances, partly through um, partnerships like the AUKUS agreement, even though I don't, you know, there's multiple different reasons for that, um, or NATO, right? Like, I mean, and and here you are in NATO. And that's exactly what we, um, our objective, 
you know, during the execution of formidable shield was. Uh, so if you, if you really kind of go back through the lens of history, Jyoti, and you look and, you know, the first at sea demonstration formidable shield, you know, conducted in 2015 was significant in it that it was the first time that an SM3 conducted a ballistic missile engagement uh, of a ballistic, well, an engagement of a ballistic missile target um, off a U.S. range, but it was inside the European theater. And it it ties back to that 2009 ballistic missile defense review and the fielding of capability associated uh, with EPAA. And it was, you know, bringing together the alliance at a very, very high-end level. Um, but it was primarily, you know, a U.S. event that was, you know, employing alliance ships under the Strike 4 NATO mantle in support of the ballistic missile defense mission. What we tried to execute, Formidable Shield 23, um, while integrated air and missile defense remains foundationally the keel of the exercise, was the recognition that we cannot conduct integrated air and missile defense in isolation of the capability that the entire force brings to bear in support of, you know, the commanders. And that's what, you know, at the end, what I think we were able to, our objective was, and I think we were successful in the demonstration of that because Formidable Shield 23 demonstrated that occurrence of multi-domain integrated operations across the joint fourth simultaneously uh, on both the Andoya Space Defense Range in Norway and on the Hebrides Range in Scotland. So I had upwards of 20 ships that were spaced across over a thousand miles of battle space that were conducting evolutions that were tailored against submarine warfare uh, in one hand and then pivoting to the French ship Retain was my anti-submarine warfare commander off of Scotland that was tracking and prosecuting a U.S. nuclear submarine in concert with MARCOM assigned support. I had two other ships that uh, were there augmenting. Well, then later in the exercise, the Britain also successfully conducted an Aster 30 engagement against a Mach 3 supersonic target. And so that, in a snapshot, is a very good reflection of what Formidable Shield accomplished. You know, similarly, in Andoya, the U.S. Navy deployed U.S. Marines from a guided missile destroyer onto the beach to provide intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and track data generation of a surface track uh, that was a target that ultimately launched um, air cruise missile threats that the Navy force in conjunction with the Norwegian Air Force, F-35s, a Dutch ship, and then Norwegian NASAMs all conducted engagements in a joint engagement zone operation. Uh, that resulted in then six HIMARS rounds being fired against that surface track that had been uh, the launching platform for those cruise missiles in the execution of these serials. And so that's how we had, you know, stitched this formidable shield going from a single SM3 launch, really, in 2015, 
to that, you know, complexity spread over three weeks. Um, you know, it was uh, a pretty significant amount of time. Uh, I think uh, I had embarked my flagship in Spain on the 27th of April. We sailed on the 29th um, of April. And then on the 8th of May, the, the exercise formally commenced uh, with the, the Spanish, the Danish, and the U.S. all conducting harpoon shots. Uh, and then we rolled right into, while that was happening, we had air defense uh, exercise, air-to-air engagements uh, and events that were occurring down uh, in Scotland. So just uh, really a lot of uh, uh, very complex evolution of warfare at sea. No kidding. Um, you know, I've taken the time to look at some of the media releases that have come out from the public affairs team uh, during Formidable Shield. And it is like, I mean, the scope of the exercise, like you say, you know, spreading across the, the ranges in Norway to uh, to Scotland and, uh, you know, all of the space in between. The expanse was huge, which I think you have to have if you're trying to test some of these these concepts and this connectivity. Um, so there's a couple of things here that that I'd like to I'd like to get an understanding for. And now this might be just only in the U.S. context, but um, we talk about data links and and having this connectivity between you know ships and surface assets and and ground based radars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, it's much more than that because there's I'm I'm assuming there's satellites, there's uh, airborne aircraft, there's the whole nine yards. But in the United States now, there's a lot of discussion about JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control. Does that factor? I'm assuming it factors into all of this, but how does that factor in with partners, or does it? So. Um, it, it has to. Unfortunately, I am not um, as familiar with JADC2 on the programmatic side to understand it. I, as we look at um, the challenge, I think, of the integrated air and missile defense fight, let's, you know, let's look at that lens from a C2 perspective, of a command and control perspective. Um, you have to recognize, I believe, that the air and missile defense fight um, is almost unique in that there are the potential, the likelihood, depending upon who your peer or your adversary is, that you're conducting warfare at multiple levels, strategic, operational, and tactical, simultaneously. And so um, a hypersonic missile, a ballistic missile, because let's be frank, a intermediate range ballistic missile is a hypersonic missile. Right. Um, and so that threat exists. It's there. Not only do peer adversaries have it, but non-peer adversaries can possess that capability and are proliferating that capability. So it's in, it's, it is on the global scope right now. Um, in order to be able to conduct this fight successfully, you know, you have to be able to have C2 at all levels simultaneously. And so, you know, I challenge the staff uh, with the recognition that you have to have tactical level detail of the performance of the sensors, the data link architecture, and the systems across the joint family with the recognition that the implications are strategic. 
And so, you know, that picture, that C2 picture, what it, I think the air and missile defense fight brings to the thinking is that it has to reflect that opportunity. If it doesn't, not only does it have to link all of the uh, sensors and effectors uh, together across a joint family of forces, but it has to be able to provide for effective command and control at multiple levels for the decision makers to be able to exercise effective C2 over those forces. Um, you know, command and control from my wheelhouse as the Commodore is my contribution to the fight in support of my commanders at sea and my assigned forces. You know, and so in order to be able to do that effectively, either I have, um, I can provide value added through a picture that they can share, or I can exercise command over my forces through, you know, what we call mission command. And at the very basic level, if I don't have a C2 system that allows me to have, um, you know, exquisite visibility in a modern fight, then I effectively have to fight, not unlike World War II, naval forces when the direction from the headquarters was seek out the enemy. And when you find them, you'll know what to do. Right. So, um, you know, and that uh, doesn't lend itself. Uh, I mean, it lends itself very well to the fight at the tactical level. You right. know, from a planning and an integration, you have to be able to maximize the capabilities. And so, you know, the analogy that I would often share with you, Jote, and you'll probably I'd ask you to think about this and, you know, correct me where I'm wrong, but I have shared, I have, you know, opined to, to some that, you know, we now through the lens of air and missile defense, um, when we look at the capability, the exquisite capability that not just the United States, but multiple nations can bring to bear. The reality also needs to be held that we're not unlike where I think the land forces were during World War I. And I fear that some of the lessons that we take from World War I and trench warfare, you know, that kind of at the very high level being the recognition that we entered World War I with the employment of, of cavalry and musket tactics in an artillery and a machine gun world. We stand now at the precipice in a similar manner from an integrated air and missile defense fight perspective. Um, I hope that JADC2 will shatter that fear or that, you know, that fear is misplaced um, because you know, the adversary gets a vote uh, and the capability that he is able to bring to bear will, you know, redefine uh, how the future war is fought, just like machine guns and artillery did. Absolutely. Um, I also hope that people realize the importance of this. It, you know, that's why I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to to help explain it, because it is complex. It is rocket science. <laughs> um, <laughs> literally, it is rocket science. Um, and the only way you verify capabilities is to exercise it. And uh, and that's what exercises like formidable shield seek out to do. And, you know, this is, I 
probably about five minutes ago, I should have started calling you a Commodore because yeah, this, this gets into all of the stuff that you were uh, that you were exercising in Formidable Shield. Um, and you know, you mentioned Aster Thirty. Um, I was amazed at the amount of missile firings that happened, and you know, that takes many many years to get to that point. But it was fascinating to me in the sense that you know, you were on board a Spanish destroyer, I believe, that was a command ship. Um, you know, you mentioned the French ship, there was U.S. ships in there, uh, and I'm just talking about the surface assets, but there were multiple missile firings. As I mentioned, you, you spoke about the Aster 30. Um, so to me, reading about it, it was, it was really impressive to see what you guys were exercising. And what I'd love to learn is what are some of the takeaways that you've taken fr from the exercise? You know, where were the successes and, and uh, you know, not to poke holes, but what are some things that you need to work on? Sure. No, that's a great question. Um, you know, first I'll go back to this and I, I don't mean to sound like a, a broken record, but the, the, the paramount importance of executing command and control over forces through mission command in this fight. Um, you know, because the realization is that the adversary's capabilities um, have evolved and, and are able to be employed in such a manner that you cannot successfully direct how your subordinate forces over, you know, thousands of miles of battle space uh, will conduct their operation. They need to know how to fight and integrate their weapon systems before you ask them, before I task them with executing that fight. And so, you know, my, again, my contribution, I think, is to provide them the battle space that they need, both in time and in space, to be able to execute that mission. That's how I viewed mission command. And so, you know, ballistic missiles, supersonic cruise missiles, hypersonic missiles remove that temporal aspect. And so, you know, if you if you think of a world that we grew up in that was not predicated on a threat that was a high mock threat uh, and how our C2 has matured and evolved as a reflection of that, then that is not the right model to be employed. That, right. I think, is, you know, uh, was reinforced significantly. Um, not a surprise uh, to our partners, certainly to, you know, the Royal Canadian Navy operating in the high Atlantic in the northern latitudes is hard. You know? <laughs> yeah. To, to, to kind of uh, paraphrase a line from a, a movie, um, if you didn't bring it here, you're not going to find it here um, from a, a sustainment and a logistics perspective. Right. right? Hey, everyone. I'd like to take a quick moment to speak about our co-sponsor, Federal Fleet Services and Davy Shipbuilding. This episode focuses on the high-end warfighting capabilities of NATO warships. Warships like these are best enabled by support and replenishment ships, which make them strategic assets. Federal Fleet Services supports the Royal Canadian Navy through the ownership operation, crewing, and in-service support of their mission-critical combat support ship, Asteris. The Asteris provides replenishment at sea services, cargo handling, helicopter operations, and operational support to the Royal Canadian Navy, thereby ensuring that Canada can project its naval operations worldwide. 
The company provides an integrated turnkey service encompassing all the required capabilities to operate and manage ships worldwide and throughout the entire lifecycle of the platform. The Asterisk was built by sister company Davy Shipbuilding, Canada's oldest and highest capacity shipyard which specializes in the construction or conversion of large ships for navies, coast guards, and commercial operators, as well as a naval support center of excellence for the refit of the Canadian patrol frigates. The Asterisk was purpose-designed, built, and delivered to the customer on time and on budget, an accomplishment that is seldom achieved in the defense industry. The Astros has been in continuous and uninterrupted service to the Royal Canadian Navy for nearly six years, and it has performed over 450 replenishment at sea operations involving over 15 allied navies around the world. And that means it has become an integral part of Canada's and NATO's maritime defense capabilities. To learn more about Federal Fleet Services and the combat support ship Asterisk, please visit federalfleet.ca and you can visit Davy Shipbuilding at davy.ca. Now let's get back to our chat with Commodore Lips. You know, uh, for someone who has spent a significant portion of my career, uh, you know, operating in the Mediterranean, uh, the South China Sea or the Middle Pacific, um, water temperatures, where if you ended up in the water, survival time is measured in tens of minutes, like 20, versus days and hours. Um, you know, you, you spoke about satellites earlier. Mm -hmm. The um, stationing of satellites from a look angle perspective and the, the, the implications and impacts to the force on low horizon look angles uh, because we are using satellite data links and voice from a C2 perspective. Um, in a similar manner, the magnification of the impact of space weather to you know, joint and maneuver forces operating in the high latitudes. Um, and so whereas uh, perhaps our Air Force brethren uh, have been thinking more of that, uh, there is, just like there are environmental impacts and effects to my radar or to my communications in the lo lower latitudes, when we think of rain and clouds and things like that, uh, well, as you operate in the higher latitudes, the solar weather and space weather starts to have a more pronounced effect on what your you know capabilities are uh, as a force. Um I think those were some of the, the, the kind of the big tell. And, and then just from a practical perspective, uh, you know, I did not encounter it, but I know, um, you know, the navigating in and around the ice becomes a consideration. Operations uh, from a how have we constructed our, our ships and or our platforms for the temperatures uh, up there, either from a tensile strength or even if I would go back and say, you know, from a coatings how we apply paint to the sides of the ship. How would they endure in that environment? I don't have the answer for, but it was one of the kind of the lessons learned going, wow, that's, I, I know that um, my Marine engineers and the smart acquisitions folks are thinking about that, but as um, operations in the Arctic circle become more prevalent due to the changing environment, that's where we are going to find ourselves operating, quite frankly. 
Um, and uh, so the navies being, you know, the uh, insurer of access to the global commons, regardless of whether kinetic conflict unfolds, will be conducting operations up there. And so those, I think those lessons transcend, you know, the negative portent of war, but also embrace the reality of what is inevitable for where we're going to be operating. Yeah, well, it, it, all really, really important lessons that much beyond, you know, one person or even, you know, uh, uh, a group of people there there's so many issues there to 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 address but you know and that's a beautiful thing about these exercises um it, you know it, you had multiple participants in uh exercise formidable shield um did anything stand out to you in terms of like you know these allied forces coming together in the construct of nato um what capabilities kind of perhaps impressed you or you know what did you kind of think wow that's kind of cool you know something that maybe you weren't anticipating um the people you know it's uh the profession of arms is one of relationships you are either building them and cultivating them or you're exterminating them with extreme prejudice is the kind of the perspective that i would bring uh, you know, you referenced the the complexity um, of the exercise, and I didn't do it justice in the explanation. I, I truly did not. The, the planners that matured this concept through to execution um, deserve all of the kudos uh, for that. But, you know, Jyoti, I go back to that international staff who, with few exceptions, those 23 sailors and airmen, uh, in some cases, uh, that uh, were on my flagship, the first time they had ever met me was, you know, 10 days before missiles were being fired. And to ask them, you know, at relatively junior ranks to be able to integrate as a staff, not only learn each other's names, but understand each other's backgrounds, integrate as a staff and do so seamlessly and effectively and convincingly to anyone who was watching I think is really the high watermark of the exercise. And so you, if you ask me what was the most telling capability, it was the people. Um, the, the ability to manifest, sack yours, tasking to forces to execute deterrence, you know, is exactly what that team did. And whether I'm talking about the international staff or I am talking about the international fleet that came together at sea or the international air force that was flying. That was the, the really the eye-watering uh, capability. Um, you know, certainly uh, from a radar, uh, from a, a missiles, uh, we learned things and we were uh, hardened. I would tell you that um, I think my final, uh, my final signal to the force, you know, I had essentially shared uh, that, you know, this would not only be the last, uh, you know, signal of, of formidable shield, uh, but it would be my last signal from sea. And I am able to send it with the knowledge that those ships, sailors, airmen, soldiers, Marines, aircraft that were assigned to that exercise and conducted what I characterize as a mission rehearsal are ready for war. Um, because there is no other demonstration, I think, across the joint force that calls those men and women to the task that they were placed to. And they did so without incident and without mishap. Um, 
that's the, you know, what I would ask you and your listeners, your audience to, to take away is that, you know, I retire with the knowledge that our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines are ready for the task. You know, it's now our job to make sure that they're equipped for it. I'm so heartened to hear that, Commodore. And, you know, from from my perspective, it, it just seemed like such an impressive exercise. And and although you've kind of capped it there, um, there's a couple of things I, I, I would like to ask, if, if you don't mind, just because, um, and perhaps it should have been at the beginning, but I really want the listeners to kind of think about the threat that is out there, because it does exist. And you know, we've referenced it in, in various different ways throughout this conversation. But um, is there anything that you're seeing, you know, in the war in Ukraine right now? Is there, um, you know, things that you're seeing from the Asia Pacific perspective? Because that all kind of forms postures and capabilities. And I know this is a mouthful here, but in exercising your capability, you have to have representative threats. Um, you mentioned a Mach 3 threat that you guys exercised against during Formidable Shield, but what will you need as things move forward to effectively exercise the force? Um, right. No, it's a great question. The, uh, we, we did talk about the, the Mach 3 supersonic cruise missile threats that were flying um, you know, tens of feet off the surface of the water. Um, I did not talk about or reference, I don't think, one of the ballistic missile targets that we tracked was uh, designed to uh, fly a flight profile similar to what I would expect from an anti-ship ballistic missile. Um, you know, and so those, those are reflections of the threat as they're evolving. Um, you, know, you asked me from a takeaways perspective, I won't go into details really uh, either forecasting from the Russian perspective or or from the alliance, um, you know the 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 invasion of Ukraine, but you know one of the takeaways for for consideration would be that as an adversary employs either ballistic missiles or um, cruise missiles in population areas, the stigma uh, and the um, I think relevance of their future employment all of a sudden becomes more germane to the calculus of the defense. And so I think that every time a ballistic missile or a um, you know cruise missile is fired, uh, it becomes more of a halcyon call for the alliance and for Western nations to recognize the risk uh, of our own homelands from those kinds of threats because their employment is now daily. Yeah. And that's, that is very, very concerning. I think anybody who's, you know, watching the news or kind of paying attention to, to what's happening around the world, you know, should be concerned, but they should also be heartened by, by what you guys are doing and, and, and exercising and validating Um, you know, and it was kind of my last question for you was what is the future? of all of this, but you've kind of, kind of just mentioned that. Yeah, no, it's, um, the future is, I would offer, um, greater integration of the capabilities, um, that seamless, uh, interoperability and integration. Um, and whether that's horizontally, vertically across national bounds, um, uh, 
those those scenes that I just articulated um, are agnostic to the perspective of the adversary. And so and he's not going to care when he goes to employ this threat. Um, We have to be able to defeat that because, you know, the reality is the homelands, uh, the population centers, um, you know, the critical infrastructure are at risk that we used to think we had the luxury of distance as our defense. Um, You no longer have time nor distance as your defense. And he doesn't have to employ a nuclear threat to hold those areas at risk, quite frankly. Uh, And that's the, again, the other wake up, I would say, with with these capabilities as, as they mature and are employed by the adversary. Sobering words, Commodore, but I think words that need to be heard. And, you know, sometimes I struggle with this. Um, You know, as a defense journalist, I want to learn as much as I can, and I hope other people want to learn as well. Um, But then, you know, does everybody need to hear this? As taxpayers, I think we should know. Uh, But then, you know, you don't want everyone to kind of be living in fear either. No, no, that's a a true statement. Um, It is a... uh... Our forces uh, in the alliance you know, demonstrated a capability and a credibility that is unequaled anywhere on the world. And that was not a single Navy or a single Air Force. Um, and we do it on a daily basis. Uh, and you know that is, uh, I thank you. I thank your listeners. I thank the U.S. citizens that support us in the, you know, the ability uh, to conduct this mission of deterrence and, if necessary, defense. Um, but uh, make no mistake, it is deterrence on a daily basis that we have uh, been outfitted with. I think that's the perfect spot to cap this discussion, Commodore Lips. This has been a wonderful chat. I, I thank you so much for sharing some of your story. I thank you for sharing what happened at Exercise Formidable Shield and for defining and putting to light the importance of integrated air and missile defense. And I'm glad that people like yourself and your team and all the other partners are doing what you're doing. Um, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story with me, sir. My privilege, sir, Um, and I appreciate the opportunity to share. It's your story. Uh, It's your and your listener's story. It was, you know, it was one of two of your sailors on my staff uh, representing the Royal Canadian Navy that made this happen. Um, And so it's your story. Uh, And I thank you for the distinct privilege uh, and the honor to join them at sea in the execution of this mission. So thanks a lot. Uh, to you, your team, your nation, uh, and uh, Godspeed and good hunting, sir. <laughs> good hunting indeed, Commodore. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today on Go Bold. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope we get the opportunity to speak again, sir. I sounds like a plan, my friend. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. That, my friends, was Captain John Lips, Commander of Task Force 64 and uh, NATO Commander of Striking and Support Forces Task Group integrated air and missile defense. Hey folks, we here at Go Bold work really hard to present senior leaders like today's guest. 
So if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a thumbs up or a like or five stars. And please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of our great guests and topics. You can also see some great videos on our YouTube channel. So please search for Go Bold with Jody Atariwala and like and subscribe there as well. And don't forget, tell your friends and colleagues about us too. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks again to our sponsors, Cubic Defense and Federal Fleet Services and Davy Shipbuilding. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of Go Bold. And until then, we hope you have a great day, everyone. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>